Hey guys, this is the C3 Church Malmo podcast. I am believing God will speak to you today and that a greater level of faith will be unlocked in your life. For more information about C3 Church, go to c3malmo.se. God bless. I'm always honored and humbled to be asked to speak to you. I want you to know I take it very seriously. It is such an honor to be asked to preach the Word of God, and I take it very seriously. And I'm here, as Pastor Matthew said this morning, with another installment of the series, God's Love, My Experience. Pastor Quentin's instructions to me were, you need to talk about God's love, you need to talk about his revelation of his love, and something personal. Okay. Uh, And as I was thinking about the title, it just felt like one of those double-pan balance scales, you know, the ones that are like a seesaw, and God's love is up here. And my, or down here, it's heavy. God's love is down here, and my experience is up here. It's just completely unbalanced and unequal. Because I'm thinking about, you know, God's love. Wow. I mean, God, God is holy and just and perfect. So his love is all of those things, too. It's something utterly different from our human love. We have an experience of love, but God's love is not that. That's human love. God's love defines itself, right? It's eternal. His love endures forever. He's always been love, love between God, one being, and three distinct persons, the Father loving and delighting in the Son, and the Son and the Spirit, and both of them and the Father. That's his love. That's, I, don't, I, I can't comprehend what that is. And at the root of the Christian worldview, it's this belief that it was out of that love, it was an outpouring of that enduring love that creation came. Creation is an outpouring, it's not chance, it's not a curse, life is not a curse, you're not here by chance. Creation was an outpouring of this love. And he made humans higher than all the rest to be in his image, to be part of his family. Each one of you, each person who's ever been born and ever will be born with his imprint and a divine purpose to be part of his family, sharing in his creative process. That's at the root of the Christian worldview. So God's God's love, my experience, I feel like this. Okay, preach about the root of all reality, Ladea, God's love and your experience. Because human experience, human love and experience is just pure. It's just so microscopic in comparison. It's bound to time and space for starters. It's finite. It's measurable. Sometimes it's fickle. Sometimes it's a feeling. It's your heart beating faster. Sometimes it's cold and detached even and dutiful human love. It's romantic. It's brotherly. It's parental. And that's all that's wonderful. But it's not God's love. It's human love. So what does this mean when we read verses like God is love or for God so loved the world, very popular verses, what does it mean? Does God love the way I experience love as a human, the way my culture defines love? The short answer is no. (laughs) The short answer is no. God's love is the standard to which all other love ought to be held, which means 
we have good reason to be careful when we understand our experiences because we're all products of our culture. We're products of our culture at large. We're products of our family. You know, and how was love expressed in your family? What does is, what is culture tell you love is? Because in the Christian worldview, we believe that there is such a thing as objective truth out there, and that means that my experiences might line up with the truth, or they might not. It means I can interpret them in line with reality, or I can twist my interpretation, or my experiences can twist my understanding of what reality is. Certainly then, my experience is first and foremost suspect. How do I know if what I call love is what God calls love? I appreciate that Pastor Quentin has anchored this series in 1 John 3.16. He used this in his sermons a few Sundays ago. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So, you might infer from that verse that, okay, selflessness or self-sacrifice for another person, that's God's love. And in some ways that's true, but of course we need a full view of scripture, including all the teachings of Jesus, for a deeper understanding of that truth at work. And surprisingly, that might show us that self-sacrifice in and of itself is a dead end. What? I've always learned that, you know, be a good Christian, you got to be selfless, so you got to, you know, be good enough, be selfless enough. But that can be a dead end, or as one theologian puts it, selflessness is not necessarily sinless. Do I have your attention? <laughs> to more fully understand what this love is that we cannot comprehend because it's something utterly different than ours, but apparently we can know Apparently, we can know it on some level, as 1 John 3.16 says. We have to investigate why Jesus laid down his life. Not just that he did it, but why he did it, and then model our own lives on that motivation, not just that action. So we know from Jesus' teachings in the Sermon on the Mount that it's all about the inner motivations of your heart. That's what counts, right? So do you know the story of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15? It's one of these very famous ones. That's my main scripture for the day, so you can get your Bibles out if you have them with you and turn to that chapter, Luke 15. Tim Keller suggests that we could rename this story, not just the story of the prodigal son, but the story of the two lost sons. Because there's not just one brother, there's two brothers in this story. And they're both crucial to understanding its purpose, its point. But let's go ahead and, and read this, okay? Chapter 15, it's halfway through the chapter, verse 11. Jesus is talking to a crowd of tax collectors and sinners and Pharisees. And he has this series of three parables. And so here's the third parable he's, he's telling at this time. He says, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed the pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate, for this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. I think that's the part of the story, if you're familiar with it, that's the part that you know the best, that sticks in your head. Uh, that's the part of the story that's in my kids' uh, Jesus storybook Bible. They tell that part, and then they, they end the parable. And it's an important, beautiful part of the story. I mean, this son, he's a pretty wretched son, right? He asked his dad for his inheritance before his dad is dead. In that time, that was the equivalent of saying, Dad, you might as well be dead to me. You're dead to me, Dad. Just give me my stuff, and I want to go do my own thing. Extremely disrespectful. Remember, this is in an honor-shame culture. So talk about the worst act of dishonor you could think of. Dad, you're dead to me. Uh, and then he takes his, his money and his things, and he goes to, you know, we would say he went off to find himself. He's finding himself. Maybe you were that teenager. Did you talk like that to your dad, to your mom? <laughs> Maybe not quite that bad. Um, but this, this son, he lives it up, but, you know, he realizes his folly, his foolishness, his shame, and he returns to his father. And his father is just so delighted that he sees him coming back in the distance. He doesn't wait for him to come all the way back. He, he runs to him, right? It's like he, I mean, he pounces on him. He's so delighted. He throws him a huge party, and they celebrate. Many of us identify with this younger brother, the one who chose the path of self-fulfillment, who allowed our individual desires to dictate the direction of our happiness. And we're so moved at the father's compassion for this son, and it is moving. But there's another brother in this story, the firstborn. This is the perfectionistic, controlling, morally dutiful firstborn older brother. And here's the thing, okay, I need to admit, I'm, I'm a firstborn. <laughs> like, literally, that's my birth order. I am the older sister. <clears throat> Luckily, this story, the point of this story, is not to prescribe the outcome of our natural birth order. Okay, so you can identify with the younger brother and not be the younger brother or sister. You can identify with the older one and not be the older one. But, but here we are. Uh, I am the older sister, and I very much identify with 
moral duty, a bit of perfectionism, a sense of rightness. Do I have any other firstborns in the room? Where are my firstborns? Hey. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> so the older brother, who's never left his father, he's absolutely incensed. He's enraged at the treatment that his brother gets because he, he's obeyed the rules. He's dedicated his life to his father. He would say that he has sacrificed his own life for his father. He's laid down his life. He's repressed his own desires. Maybe he would have wanted to go off and do something else. But he repressed that desire, put them aside, to take the path of moral duty. Let's read about his uh, side of the story here. Back to Luke 15, verse 25. Meanwhile, so they're in there celebrating. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been, I've been slaving for you. I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Even now, reading this brother's side of the story, I totally identify much more with him. I mean, it's frustrating to me. I once had a, a non-Christian co-worker bring up this story, though she seemed to be familiar only with the younger brother part two, and she had the same response. I just, you know, the Christian faith, the story about God in that story, it just, ugh, it doesn't seem fair. Just what, what ridiculousness and unfair treatment to that older brother who's been loyal. But notice what the father said to his, ver uh, to his firstborn in that last part, verse 31. He says, my son, you are always with me. Everything I have is yours. This father, he's responding with love even to this older brother and understanding and gentle correction. And he simply states, the reward is already yours. The point of all this was to be in relationship with me. You've always had that. But what does this son do? He rejects it ultimately because he doesn't go into the party. So some read the, the main point of this story as just the younger brother's journey. And look, look at that father's gift to that wild, um, debaucherous son. But as with all of Jesus' parables, it's layered and there's more than that. You see, with this parable, Jesus is providing a sharp illustration of the root of sin and both brothers have it. It's not just wild living. Oh, so sin is wild living. I'm not going to be like that, brother. No, no, no. It's way worse than that. It's way worse than that. The sin is that both brothers in their own ways are seeking to be the Lord of their own lives, their own saviors. The younger in his way desired to shake off morality and obedience to this higher authority in exchange for a self-serving, free-spirited quest. 
But notice, when he asks his father, when he demands in this extreme act of dishonor for his share of the estate, the father says, okay, here you go. So that is, when we choose our own path, God allows us to follow it. And often we find the natural consequences of our choices, the natural consequences of this brother's choices. He ended up in a pigsty. The older brother has given his life to working for his father, following his guidelines, and yet he doesn't attend the party. You see, his self-sacrifice was ultimately not because he cared about his father or his relationship with his father, and certainly not for his brother. Did you notice he didn't even call him brother at the end when he's arguing with his father? He says, that son of yours. He's not even a brother to him. And he hates his younger brother. Not only for the mercy his father has shown, he's also adding up the cost of all this in his mind. So you see, when the father went ahead and gave the younger son his share of the inheritance, and then when he took him back and gave him a robe and a ring and they threw a party, that meant he was taking all that stuff out of what would have been the older brothers, right? Because the younger brother's inheritance was used up and gone. So this older brother is enraged, not only for the mercy, but because it was on his dime. He had to pay for it. So he's mad. He's like, I've been morally dutiful, I've been obedient, and this is all I get. My brother gets that, and it's with my stuff. In the parable, the younger brother has a change of heart, but not so for the older one. One's life experiences led him to realize his need for the father, and the other's experiences lead him to dig his heels in even more. Jesus presents these two ways of living. You have the pleasure seeker and the dutifully ethical person in their extreme cases to show where these life paths, when followed through, lead. Most people who follow either philosophy don't end up in such extreme situations. Most people who are following the philosophy of, I'm going to you know, fulfill my own desires, self-fulfillment, self-discovery, they don't ruin their lives in such an extreme state as the younger brother. And most people who think it's good enough to be a good person and obedient, they're not nearly as heartless and angry as the older son. But these images tell us that each approach to life has the seeds of its own destruction in it. So it's a warning sign if you're thinking, well, I'm not as, I'm not as bad as either of those in the story. Or, mm, I'm not as bad. Yeah, I got a little bit, you know, a little bit of older brother, a little bit of younger brother, but I'm not as bad. Why compare sins if in God's eyes the number of behavioral sins you have or have not committed is not what gets you into the party? Jesus doesn't divide the world into good people and bad people, but lost ones and found ones, as he says twice in this story. That's why I'm a good person. I follow the rules. Is no feather in your cap. That's why Christians who have forgotten their first experience of God's love and grace need to be reminded. The early church took communion every time they gathered for this reason because they knew we got to remember all the time that by ourselves, we got nothing to offer God. Even our best acts of sacrifice, obedience, and morality are pitiful compared to God's holiness, to his perfect love, 
especially if our heart motivations are dark. This is what I mean about that scale. It's like God's love is this, and human love and experience is just, it's just unequal. You know, I was privileged to grow up in a home with God, and it truly a privilege to grow up in the Christian faith. For me, it meant that my journey of faith, though, was a little bit muddy. Maybe it's because the timeline of my life can't easily be and neatly be divided into lost and found, because I chose to give, give my heart to God when I was a child, you know, younger than 10, maybe 7 or so. And of course, there are good things in the metaphor of having faith like a child. But of course, if our faith remains childish, it will be totally rocked as we experience life and loss and ideas that don't match up with our childish understanding of God, his purposes, and how we fit in. My husband, on the other hand, came to Christ in his late 20s. So this divide between lost and found is much clearer. Plus that his first conscious experience of the grace of God was as an adult, and mine was as a child, so it's further away from me, and memory is unreliable. So when I was a kid, we attended charismatic churches that heavily emphasized a here and now experience of God and the Holy Spirit, which to be clear, I strongly believe in those types of experiences, and I've had them. But there was something about that particular environment and my perfectionist um, firstborn tendencies that didn't mix very well. I wanted to do the right thing, certainly in the eyes of my mother, who was the closest parent to me, and in the eyes of the church. And the right thing for both of these people was to experience God. What a great, what a great right thing to be chasing. But it meant for me as a child, during worship services, I would... Um, you know, sometimes be trying to squeeze out a tear in my eye. <laughs> I'd be like, the band would be singing Amazing Grace or something, and I'd be like, come on, just ex cry a little bit. <laughs> and at one point, at one service, I remember telling a friend, I've been, cry I've been crying out of one eye. I've, I've been crying out of one eye. This service really got me. <laughs> it meant... That, of, co of course, this ex ex appearance of experience wasn't the same thing as heart-level experience, not even close. Quite silly examples. But it also meant that as a kid, I was always a little bit afraid. It meant that every time in kids' church, the children's pastor would say, raise your hand if you need salvation. I'd be every single Sunday, <laughs> like I do, because I, I felt like I wasn't sure if the time I said it before really counted. Did I feel it enough? Did I mean it enough? Was I sorry enough? Was my emotional experience of it strong enough? I wasn't sure. You see, this is the seed of the older, older brother spirit, right, right there, fertilized with an incorrect understanding that appearing a certain way and staying inside the lines and doing the right things would make me right and good. And at the root of all that is this thought this lie that if I am right and good, then I will be acceptable and lovable. Some Christians, maybe especially those with charismatic backgrounds, may recognize themselves in this somewhat exalting of the experience for the sake of the experience instead of the God who authors the experience. If that's you, you can just ask yourself, are you looking for a hyped worship service or the God beyond all hype? 
Are you looking for a feel-good gathering, some encouragement? Yeah, I go there because I just feel so good encouraged when I walk out of there. Or are you looking for the great encourager? It's an important distinction. Questions about emotionally-based faith like these came more to the forefront of my mind as a teenager, and I eventually became pretty allergic to overly emotionally charged church services because I knew that my motivations sometimes weren't always pure. So that made me think, well, maybe not. Maybe other people's aren't so pure in here. Maybe they're also putting on a show. I know many Christians who came of age in similar environments, and they've left the faith altogether, believing it all to be emotional, experiential, and a little manipulative because of that. They never got discipled into any further, firmer ground. And they found, hey, well, I can feel encouraged there, pretty good, but I can also feel that elsewhere. Why should I choose the church over any other place? Now, I knew at that time, of course, there were many sincere people in the churches we attended, and my family certainly was very sincere and not hypocritical. The problem wasn't with them, necessarily. It was with my heart condition. I hadn't yet sorted out the experience from the truth, from the experience of truth, from the emotion of dim lights and a backup band. I had questions like, if I go to one of those services and I don't feel anything, does that mean that God didn't choose me that day? Does that mean that God doesn't love me? Does that mean that God doesn't exist? That's the danger of letting your experiences be your only filter. What brought me back was getting rooted in the word and letting God tell me who he is. So let's get back to our text. Okay, if we go back to Luke 15 for a second. I mentioned in that chapter, right before the story of the prodigal son or the story of the two lost sons, there's two other short parables. One uh, is that story of the sheep. There's a shepherd. He's got 99 sheep and one lost one out there. And what does he do? He leaves the flock and goes out to find it. Where's my lost sheep? And he finds it and he's so excited and he celebrates. And the other story is a woman with nine coins. Uh, and she lost her 10th coin, and she just tears up her house, turns it upside down, looking for that 10th coin. And when she finds it, she calls her neighbors, tells everyone, Woo, I found my coin, isn't that great? Someone called you and said, I found my coin, what would you say? <laughs> Ooh, okay, <laughs> sentimental value. <clears throat> but then this third parable, which is strategically placed after these three, notice that no one goes out to find the lost younger brother. Someone went out to find the sheep. Someone went digging for the coin. No one goes to find the younger brother. Luke puts these here on purpose. Jesus tells them like this on purpose. You're supposed to read it and say, wait a second, where's the, where's the person that was going to go look for him? So there's a missing piece to this story. Jesus, of course, is telling this and plugging in to a whole paradigm of stories about siblings. Going all the way back, people make fun of me because I always go back to Genesis in most of my messages, but going all the way back to Genesis and the sibling rivalry between Cain and Abel. Cain, a resentful, proud, older brother. And what does God say to Cain? He says, you are your brother's keeper. You are your brother's keeper. 
the right older brother would have said to his father when his little brother walked out. He would have said, Dad, my brother's been an absolute idiot. His life's a mess. He's just really messed this one up. I'm going to go find him. I really want to bring him back. That's what it means to be your brother's keeper. I'm going to do whatever it takes to go get him. And Dad, you know what? you You gave him his inheritance already. I bet it's already gone. But I'll cover it. The co- I'll cover the cost. Okay, I'm going to bring him home and cover that cost. And so many of the listeners of this story at the time Jesus told it, they'd have heard this loud and clear. They would have heard, look, there's a price to pay to being reinstated into the kingdom of God, and the price is not the sum of all your good deeds. They'd be thinking, oh, I want, I want there to be the true older brother. Where is that person? Who could afford to pay the cost of this immense difference between God's perfect goodness, holiness, and love and our behavior, our attempts at goodness even, not even just our bad behavior, but our attempts at goodness that are so warped and disordered and just utterly puny in comparison? Of course, no one but God himself could cover that cost. No one but God the Son, our true older brother, could reconcile us to his father. And do you know what God our Father says to Jesus, his son, through which we can all become his children? You know what he says to him? In Matthew chapter 3, Jesus is baptized. And God the Father's first words to Jesus after he's born into his ministry role are, This is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He said those words before his ministry had started. He hadn't healed anyone yet. He hadn't preached the Sermon on the Mount. And God says, there he is. He's my son. I'm well pleased with him. And you see, because Jesus is our true older brother, we're grafted into this experience. And so like a bomb to my broken heart as a teenager, early 20-something, striving to do good and be good to all people, he says, my daughter... I love you, and I am well pleased with you. Whatever you've done, or for whatever reason, you've done something. It's an illustration of the perfect order of things. The father loves the son, so he communicates his plan to him, and the son loves the father, and so he's obedient. He fulfills his mission. Jesus himself says his death and resurrection are so that the world may learn that I love the father. And I do exactly what my father has commanded me. Not just to lay down my life, just because. It's for the love of the father. In John 17, 1, Jesus prays a prayer before his crucifixion and says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that your son may glorify you. So not only do we know what love is because Jesus gave up his life, we know it Because he gave up his life for the only acceptable reason to give up your life, for the love and glory of the Father. That's that perfect love that has always existed. And it's that love between the Father and the Son that produced creation and produced you. That's our family. It's our spiritual family. And it's our model. What's amazing in all this is that God doesn't revel in punishing us when we miss the mark. He's not out to control us. 
He wants to restore us to our divine purpose and family. The brothers in this parable, they interact differently with the father, but the father is loving in both interactions. Sometimes the realization, not just the feeling, but the realization of God's love and provision for you pounces on you in the same way the father runs to that younger brother. And you just feel overwhelmed when your eyes are open because you realize that his glory and his greatness, greater than the universe, beyond comprehension, you recognize that, you see it, and you're like, because you, you know your own muck because you've been walking around in a pigsty. When you see that difference, you're astounded that God, stripped of his own robes to die naked on a cross, gives you a clean one, just like he gives this younger brother, and says, my son, my daughter, let's feast. Sometimes you might realize his love more like an older brother opportunity. Now, he misses it, but Jesus still shows us love in the same way he shows this older brother love. He's outside the party, and his father, father comes out to him. He doesn't say, get in there, celebrate with your brother. No, he says, please come in. Be a family with us. Your brothers come home. He doesn't demand, and he listens to this older brother's protest. He listens to your protests. I'm not sure. He listens to your doubts to your questions, he'll be right there as you have those conversations. And his offer to come in the house always stands. He never takes it back. Over a lifetime now of following him, I've had multiple experiences of both kinds, and I pray that you all do too. My adult life as a Christian truly started went through a revelation of God's truth to me through the word. I finally understood that my lovability didn't depend on my goodness, that the anchor of my soul, and therefore the sense of my rightness in the world, is God. Sure, I had a list of bad things to repent for, but repenting is so much more than going through a checklist and say, oh, I'm sorry, I did that wrong, I did that wrong, sorry, sorry, sorry. The pharisaical older brother needs to repent for his selfish reasons he's ever done anything right. If I've ever done anything good for any other reason than for the love and glory of God, then I've sinned. I haven't done it for the right reason. And it's crucial. Here's why it matters. You're thinking, well, why does it matter if, if the action is right in the end and you show some kindness? Why does it matter why you did it, if it's a selfish reason or not? And this is why. It's crucial that we get this message right into our heads because there are a bunch of people out there who think that the church is full of older brothers. Well, we're doing the right thing. It's because I did all the right things, and you guys are out there in the pigsties. That's what some people think we are. And, you know, sometimes we give them good reason to think that. And yet, when you remember that, no, the reason I do anything good and I'm right at all is because of the love and the glory of God the Father and the Son. I cannot boast. None of us can boast. And yet, when we become his children, we accept his invitation. He's, he boasts in us. He says, my son, my daughter, I love you. I'm pleased with you. This is God's love. 
course, I can't force anyone to love God. No one can force anyone to realize the truth of God's love or to feel it. I have no idea, thank God, what your inner motivations are. But to move from a state of fear and insecurity and anger, the, I mean, you've got to be captivated by Jesus and what it costs, our true older brother who gladly paid that price. You've got to be captivated, captivated by that. And when you accept his invitation, you need to be discipled by spiritual brothers and sisters into this new family culture where God sets the definitions of what is love. What is right? Would you bow your heads with me as I close? Band, you can come up. I just want to ask if anyone in the room, or if you're watching online or listening on the podcast later, do you feel like the younger brother? You've been far away, you feel lost. But there's this sense that, oh, I want to escape this feeling. If you sense that you want to escape it, God's knocking on your door. If you don't sense anything, it doesn't mean he's not there. It just means you haven't had that realization yet. And I pray that you do. But if you have that feeling, ah, yeah, I am definitely got some younger brother spirit in me, and I want to get out of this. Just like the younger brother comes to his senses and starts his journey home, if anyone here feels like that, would you just stick your hand up for a second? And I'll pray for you. Not because I'm an older brother up here (laughs) going to judge you. I see your hand. Put it down. Maybe you know a younger brother person. If you have someone in your mind, someone you're praying for, would you put up your hand? I'm praying for this person to have this realization. I do. A lot more hands. Thank you. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for your holy love. Help us to just wonder and awe at this great love, at creation, at Jesus, your son. God who invaded creation on a mission to restore humanity to its rightful place at the dinner table as your children. Lord, I pray for an awakening to God's love, his eternal enduring love. I pray that our experiences would lead us to a greater awareness of you and not to our hearts hardening. Lord, would you soften our hearts? Would you soften the hearts of those people who are on the minds of so many in this room? Lord, I pray that your spirit would let the scales fall from our eyes and their eyes, Lord. Would you awaken us, awaken them to your compassion? Would you tell them that you're running to them, that you can't wait to show them honor, to invite them in? Doesn't matter what bad behavior they've engaged in. Tell them that they can come home, Lord. Older brothers, older brothers in the room or are you or listening? Are your motivations aligned with Jesus' motivations today? Jesus says to his disciples, if you love me, you'll obey my commands. Not if you have a great sense of duty and righteousness on your own account. Do you love him? Do you obey his commands out of love or duty? 
Do you keep a tab of wrongs? Do you secretly judge other people in this room? Do you worry you're not doing enough? Look, if you're longing to be seen and to be loved, for someone to say, I'm pleased with you, not because you did this or that or performed well, but just because, well, God our Father is waiting to say it to you. Lord, I thank you that the words are already on your lips. We know it because we read them in your word. Your son, your daughter, you love us. Thank you that you talk to us, Lord, that you're pleased with us. Thank you that we are empowered to do and to be all that you've created us to be by your love. Thank you that you've given us a revelation of who you are in your word, that we may know you. Lord, thank you for this C3 family of brothers and sisters. Lord, may your face always shine on them.